who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 383. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Women and Aliens Month concludes this week, folks, with a great story I know you're going to love. Sun, Moon, Cat, Man, by debut author Julia Reynolds. Julia's a writer in Austin, Texas. She likes to think she's ready for the apocalypse. The story is read to you by Veronica Giguere and produced by Drabblecast producer Adam Pratt. So, without further ado, we bring you Sun, Moon, Cat, Man by Julia Reynolds. Sun, Moon, Cat, Man Written by Julia Reynolds Narrated by Veronica Giguere What have we got, Sergeant Kelly? I ask, tired and bored from a long day of doing very little. I was just about to go home to my empty flat. These days, it's not so different from the police station. On my speakerphone, Kelly's voice says, Patrol has a perp for you to interview. He's in interrogation room one, ma'am. Of course he's in room one, I think, as I walk down the hallway. We don't even use the other rooms anymore except for storage. One benefit of our new masters, crime is practically non-existent. Sergeant Kelly meets me outside the interrogation room. He hands me a computer tablet and a paper folder. Lieutenant, we're to find out if he has any accomplices and then take him downstairs. He has a summary judgment. I look up at Kelly and see he is serious. Summary judgment? 
For the sake of the masters, what did he do? Kelly grimaces. Graffiti, he says, opening the door and stepping aside so I can enter. I think about the case he must mean, our only outstanding graffiti case. Ugly pictures in subways. We've been looking for the vandal for months, but the crime doesn't merit death. Re-education and relocation, certainly, but not death. A middle-aged man sits cuffed to the other side of the table. He's slightly built with graying hair at the temples, and is wearing a lime-green city service as coverall. A street cleaner, then. The man's ident appears on the tablet. His name, Jameson Hewitt. Mr. Hewitt, you're our subway graffiti artist. Is that right? Hewitt attempts a crooked smile, but says nothing. He looks exhausted, and his handcuffs rattle when he shifts in his chair. We got him on video in the 45th Street Station. Those new cameras caught him in the act. As Kelly says this, he touches the tablet and pops open a video. We watch as Hewitt sweeps a line of red spray paint across a white tile wall. Mr. Hewitt, the evidence is clear, I say. Do you acknowledge your crime? Hewitt looks at me and shrugs. Who are your accomplices, Mr. Hewitt? Where did you get the paint? Who helped you hide for so long? I'm afraid I can't discuss that. Hewitt speaks softly with a faint accent. Get a truth kit, Kelly, I say over my shoulder. I pull the paper folder from under the tablet and open it. We can't use a truth kit on this one, Lieutenant. No language receptors in his brain. He's a wild. Kelly's matter-of-fact voice rings loudly in the interrogation room. A wild. I stare at Jameson Hewitt. He's not smiling now. He looks calmly at me, waiting for my reaction. I catch a whiff of his aftershave, something pleasant and old-fashioned. I remember that we used to wear aftershave, perfume, makeup. We used to adorn ourselves. Language took away that primitive desire. Now we all blend together, in service to each other and the masters. I was immune to their virus. I had to learn their language the hard way. Hewitt speaks softly, but now that I know to listen for it, his accent is easy to recognize. I swipe through Hewitt's record. He spent 18 months in a re-education treatment after landing day for psychological reconditioning and immersive language training. Before the masters arrived, he was a university professor. English literature. I'm shaken. Someone from before. Someone unmodified by the Masters. It's like finding myself speaking to a dinosaur. To cover my nerves, I look down at the folder. It's full of photo printouts of Hewitt's graffiti. Each painting is meticulously annotated with date, time, and location. In the bottom corner, a tiny map of the subway line has an X marking the graffiti location. The first picture is of the sun, 
a cheery orange and yellow ball. Below the painting are some uneven symbols, and below that, a phonetic transcription in language SS-UN. The next painting is adjacent to the sun on the same subway wall, a green and blue planet, and a gray moon. Beneath the planet are more symbols and the language transcription. ER-TH. The pictures are obviously the work of a simple mind. I look at Hewitt, slumped in his chair. Seeing my glance, he attempts to smile again, saying, It's just a bit of a hobby. A fatal hobby, but I can't say that. I'm supposed to get information from Hewitt before we implement the summary judgment. Before we kill him for our masters, I correct myself. The next photo shows a crude stick drawing of a cat. The cat sits grooming one paw, its tail long and arching. Below the painting, as I have come to expect, more obscure symbols, and below that, a language sound alike. K-A-T. The same cat appears again in the next photo, but this time it stands astride a dead master's mangled corpse. The cat grins, its fangs dripping with purplish master's blood. Hence the summary judgment. It's just a crude cartoon, but the gaping wound in the graffiti master's neck horrifies me. The clause from the master's law book comes unbidden. Any discussion or depiction of injury or death to a master is punishable by immediate summary judgment. I start sweating and my pulse races. I know I'm experiencing an emotional response triggered by the language matrix inside my brain because my instant reaction is too strong to be natural, like an overdose of cold medicine. I breathe deeply and close my eyes for a moment to clear the image from my mind. One of my best works, don't you think? Hewitt sounds tired but undeniably pleased with himself. I look at Hewitt for a long moment, studying his unassuming features and the neatly trimmed goatee. I would never notice him on the street, but here he's shown me the most seditious thing I've seen in years of policing. So this is a wild. I have no idea how to get him to talk, but the masters must be served. I flip to the last photo in the stack. In the drawing, a woman and a man are holding hands. As before, underneath the woman's picture are more of the symbols and a language transcription. The man in the picture has blocky shoulders and a mustache. Under his picture is a short cluster of symbols and then the language sounds. M-A-N. I'm desperate to get Hewitt talking. Say something about the picture, I think, so I blurt out anything. My words surprise me. I knew a man named Malik, I say. He wore aftershave like yours. I've spoken the truth. I open up the memory as if it were a folded map I've been storing in a drawer. I have a flash of large hands, gentle against my face. 
then the memory fades, as I've become accustomed to when something from before happens to surface, especially some recollection tinged with emotion. Something that occurred before the Master's language virus rewired my brain, along with everyone else's on the planet. They civilized us, improved us. Old passions dissipated, replaced by peace and order, and willing submission to the Masters. The outline of memory is there, but any emotion drains away. I'm left with something like a footnote in an academic paper. There once was a man in my life. I recall his face faintly, dark eyes and brown skin. His name was Malik. You knew a man? Hewitt asks, startled. I realize I've used his nonsense word from the graffiti. Hewitt lunges forward and Kelly steps toward him, but Hewitt already has the photo of the male figure and he pushes it across the table. Malik was a man, Hewitt says emphatically, almost shouting at me and struggling against the cuffs to point at the photo. I look down at the picture and study the symbols. I repeat Hewitt's sound aloud. Man. And as I trace my finger along the jagged lines, the faint smell of Hewitt's aftershave reaches me again. Vanilla and leather. I focus on the flat memory of Malik's face and I repeat the sound again. Man. In that moment, the symbols sharpen into letters. The letters make a word, man, and a hundred dormant memories blossom. Memories of before. Love and longing and then terror when the masters landed. Malik telling me to lock the door and saying he would be right back, watching him join the protesters moving through the streets. The night sky blazed with beams of light and silent explosions as the masters took the city. Kelly taps me on the shoulder. Lieutenant, they want him downstairs. I nod and rise at once. The masters must be served. When we walk Hewitt downstairs, my legs move woodenly, as if I were a remote-controlled toy. I try to stop, but I stumble, and a cramp twists the muscles in my calf. I'm used to a numb feeling, a sign of language-induced reactions when I'm doing something against my nature to serve them. But now I feel everything. I stand in the back of the judgment chamber while Kelly and the other officers prepare Hewitt. You're the ranking officer, Lieutenant, Kelly says, offering me the pad that controls the injectors. I shake my head, waving a hand to refuse. I can't seem to say anything. Kelly looks at me for a long moment and then shrugs. He and the others set up the summary judgment flawlessly, just as they were trained to do by our masters. There are six officers. I count them, between me and Hewitt. If only I had a handgun, I could shoot our way out, I imagine wildly. But even if I had such a relic, what could I do? Murder my colleagues who I've known for decades and run away with the prisoner? Ridiculous. They are not the enemy. And I can't move anyway. I can only watch, 
my mind grinding on with half-formed plans to save him and myself. To escape, to fight against the masters. In the end, I stand helpless, my eyes on Hewitt's. Just as he was during interrogation, Jameson Hewitt goes to his death quietly. But as they slip the needles into his arm, he looks at me. Goodbye, Lieutenant, he says, awkward-sounding words that make no sense to language-tuned ears. They make sense to me, though. Goodbye, Dr. Hewitt, I answer. Kelly turns and stares at me, shocked to hear the strange old words come from my mouth. Hewitt stiffens as the drugs hit his bloodstream. Others have seen my work, just like you, he says. Hewitt beams at me, his eyes delighted and proud. But as I watch, never taking my gaze away from his, those eyes dim and then close. Hewitt's body droops against the restraints. I study his corpse, already growing pale. He's dead, killed by the masters while I stood mute and motionless. The pain of it sears my chest. Pain, I remember that word now. And shame, shame, raw and merciless, rolls over me. Then another forgotten emotion erupts. Rage. I nurse this feeling with intent, and it boils inside me. Numb no longer, I step away and up the stairs. In the evidence room, Hewitt's kit is still on the table, a black backpack with cans of paint sticking out of the pockets. I slip one of the cans into my briefcase, and another one up my sleeve. The Midtown train station is on my way home, and it's almost deserted at this hour. Some of the new cameras will be there, and I'm already planning how to avoid them as I walk out the door into the night. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it, folks. Hope you enjoyed Women and Aliens Month. We're excited to start back up next week with a regular schedule with Drabblecast's highly acclaimed H.P. Lovecraft Celebration Month, featuring Drabblecast-commissioned original fiction by some of your favorite authors. You're not going to want to miss it. That's all for this week, though, weirdos. Remember that Drabblecast is brought to you with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. As you know, we run off the generous support of listeners just like you, so consider going to our website, Drabblecast.org, and making a contribution. We greatly appreciate it. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, The Littlest Finch. Allie, also known as The Littlest Finch, currently resides in the Pacific Northwest with her deaf ferret and betta fish. She's very inspired by the strangeness of the natural world and her vivid imagination, which results in a menagerie of strange beasts and weird faces. She can pretty much always be found lurking on the interwebs, and you can check out more of her work at www.littlestfinchart.com. Our program this week was brought to you by Drabblecast Chief Editor Nathan Lee, our art director, Bo Kyer, and many thanks to our special guest artist this month, Nikki Drayden. 
You did an awesome job. Also, thank you to Tom Baker, David Garvin, and David Steffen for your support. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you, it's just a bit of a hobby. In the dark corner table sits Lance Fernandez, the boss. And as women surround him like clothing, all tussled and ready to toss. All tussled and ready to toss. He mutters these words to his lackey. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, the podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. I bring you two episodes a week. Every Monday, I cover something from a wide variety of topics, covering everything from feminist faves throughout history like Audre Lorde, listener coming out stories, and other hot-button topics like toxic masculinity and the Me Too movement as well as plenty feminist history, the good and the controversial. And then every Friday, I bring you a mini What's in the News episode to keep you up to date with everything that's going on today in the world. And with over 580 episodes available to you right now, there's plenty of good stuff to listen to. You can listen to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminists wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rage on. Bye. Bye.